Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for this gathering together that we can have, that we can draw near to one another here and even in dispersion. And we can know that your presence is with us as we draw near to you and draw near to your church throughout the world. Continue to work in us and heal us and help us to lay hold of your promises each day and each moment that we would be renewed more and more after the image of Jesus our Lord. Enlighten our hearts and our minds this day as your Spirit works in us the words of Jesus for us. And we ask all of this through that same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Apologize for all the coughing earlier. I got a scratch in my throat. Drinking too much tea this morning, it always dries my mouth out. So, this morning, I decided, looking at our lectionary readings, that for a number of coming weeks and months, we're actually going to be reading quite a bit from the book of Romans, beginning with chapter 5. So, for now, I think Romans 5 through 8 is a good place for us to walk into over these next few weeks and to just walk through these passages and to hear what the Lord is telling us, to hear what Paul wrote down for the people of Rome as he was getting ready to travel there on his way through to go on to Spain for his last missionary journey. In this passage, Paul has built up a major argument. He has gone through these first four chapters of Romans, laying the groundwork that he begins just building upon and creating an amazingly beautiful building of truth about our salvation, about our redemption, about the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished. You see, in the first few chapters, Paul has confidently argued that we're all sinners. All of humanity, all of mankind, everyone who has been born into this world are sinners, save for Jesus Christ. But everyone else, the descendants of Adam and Eve, are all broken through and through and have turned away from the Lord. Even if they do good deeds, those deeds aren't the right kind of good deeds because they are separated in relation from the Lord. They are not connected to Him. They are not living out toward Him. And so all are under condemnation. All are under judgment in those first few chapters. Save for those who respond to what Christ has done, who respond to that gospel and turn in faith. And then in chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to Abraham to remind us that those who have faith become God's people. Because after all, Abraham was not part of God's people because God's people did not exist. But Abraham turned to the Lord and trusted his promises. He trusted the promise of God, the promise of Yahweh, and left the land, left his father, and took his family and his servants down into Canaan. And that faith that Abraham had over and over, that faith that he experienced, that faith that he expressed was counted as righteousness, according to Paul, according to Scripture, according to God. And that all happened before he was circumcised, before he received the covenant of circumcision. Abraham believed the promise. And that that promise is realized through faith. That promise is experienced through faith. And so Paul picks up here at the beginning of chapter 5, 
to point out to us what is going on. In all of this, Paul has been arguing that Christ's death means that we have been brought into right relation to God the Father. It's not just for the present moment, but also for the future. And I say right relation to God, not relationship. Because I think relationship has too many connotations to it that it dims our view of what it means to be close to God. To say right relation means that everything has been fixed, everything has been taken away that separated us, that kept us from the Lord. And that we enter into right relation with him to receive all of his benefits, to receive all of his goodness, and that through that we have assurance that is what is true in the present moment will be true in the future because of what has been done in the past. What is true in this moment will be true in the future because of what was done in the past. Our present faith is what gives us assurance about the future. It's because of what has been accomplished in the past by Jesus. Of course, by present faith, I mean the faith that remains and clings to the work of Jesus in the here and now. Paul isn't concerned with what we've done in the past, because in the past, all that we've done has been sin. What we accomplished in the past is not what we're doing right now. Paul is concerned with the here and now, with our faith in the moment. Do you have faith in this moment? Do you have hope in God's faith? You have hope in God's faithfulness in the future. That future doesn't rest upon your actions, though. It rests upon the one in whom the faith is placed. Your faith is in Jesus himself and what he has done on our behalf, on your behalf. And that is the touchstone, the center of our theology, that Jesus and his work is the foundation for the past, present, and the future of our salvation. And so Paul has built up this argument, and he begins unpacking what it means for us. And so this chapter begins with what we have in faith. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been brought into right relation to God. All that stood between us and God has been removed. And we've been declared not guilty by faith on account of Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, right off the bat, Paul says that through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is this peace? We have justification through faith and that leads to peace with God. With God. Peace with God. I think it's important for us to hear that with God, that this is coming from God's side to us. This isn't us establishing peace. This is a gift of God himself, peace with God, not the peace of God, which would be the subjective side of that equation, that subjective experience of peace that pervades, invades us. But here, the main thing is that we have peace with God through Jesus. It's objective, a peace that exists without our feeling it, without our sensing it. Now, Paul isn't discounting that subjective aspect of experience, but here he is focused on the objective side, which will lead into an experiential side. Without the objective, there is no subjective. 
without the fact that God has declared us to be at peace with him, that he has declared that he himself is at peace with us, that whether we do anything now, we are at peace with God through Jesus, and that that peace is ours, regardless of our strivings. It's deeply important for us to understand that that peace exists no matter what. Because that helps me deal with those times when I don't sense, when I don't feel, when I don't experience that existential peace. When my heart is torn, when my mind is distracted, when my mind wanders, I can lean back into the fact that there is peace with God no matter what and that Jesus accomplished this and it's received through faith. It's received by faith because I'm justified by faith. It depends on faith. It depends ultimately on Jesus. And the faith is what receives that peace. The faith is what can experience that peace. That peace exists apart from me. I think of when my children get in trouble with me. When they do something wrong, they break something, and they're very torn up, and they're very upset about it. And they think I'm going to be angry and just lash out at them and be and yell at them and punish them and discipline them. But there's peace between us. I can forgive because they are my children. There is peace that exists and I can embrace them and tell them it's okay. Yes, you did wrong. Yes, you made a mistake. Yes, you broke something and we'll deal with that later. But right now, I want you to know that there is peace between us because I want there to be peace. And if I want there to be peace, there is. Whether they feel it or not, there is peace between us. And they can be received into that peace. And that peace leads to so much in our lives. It leads on into gaining access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Through Jesus, we have that access into faith. Through Jesus, we have access to God himself. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can rejoice in what God has accomplished. We can rejoice in the glory of God even. That glory that Moses wasn't allowed to look directly upon. That glory that Isaiah himself shielded his own eyes from and fell upon his face and said that he was not worthy because he was such a great and terrible sinner. Here we can rejoice in the hope of that glory. Because where does that glory reside? That glory resides in Jesus himself. And we know that Jesus has taken away our sins. He has taken away the reason for that glory to be scary to us. He has taken away the reason for that glory to be fearful. And so we can now rejoice in hope in the glory of God, in the hope of the glory of God coming down and pervading all of this earth and renewing and redeeming everything in creation and purifying and purging it. We can rejoice in hope. That future change of everything, that future change and complete renewal of ourselves to be bathed completely in the glory of God. And Paul goes on to say, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul says that because of faith, because of Jesus, and our trusting in him, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that hope of full salvation coming, but even in the midst of our sufferings, we can rejoice. That's what that means when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. He's not meaning that we 
throw a party and get happy about the fact that we're suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, we can find something to rejoice in because we know what the ultimate end goal is. We know that it is Jesus renewing all things. We know that it is God pouring out his glory to redeem and change and recreate all of creation, to purify it of all sin. And so as we suffer, as we wrestle, as we deal with this world that hates us, as we deal with the sinful self within that hates us, we can rejoice as that suffering comes upon us. We can rejoice in the midst of it, knowing that nonetheless God is at work. And we know at the core that our sufferings aren't because of our sin. Jesus has dealt with that sin. God doesn't come along and punish us because of sins committed. And so therefore, in the midst of those sufferings, we can rejoice. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't hard struggles that are created by our sin, that when I sin, I cause suffering to occur on, in me. I cause suffering to occur around me that redounds back to me and makes me miserable, or that God doesn't even discipline us, but God still disciplines us. But this kind of suffering that Paul is talking about is the kind of suffering that we might think of as judgment and condemnation from God. That doesn't exist anymore. As we draw near to God and Jesus Christ, condemnation and judgment is not part of our life. And so in the midst of sufferings that come upon us, we can trust that God is at work and that he will produce endurance. Some translations say patience. I like endurance because we tend to think of patience as utter passivity, of just sitting around, letting everything happen to us and not doing anything. But endurance is striving to move forward in the midst of struggle. Endurance is enduring, maintaining movement, continuing forward. Perseverance could be another good word. As we think about Job's perseverance, that despite all the suffering that he was enduring, he clung to God and said, my suffering is not on account of any sin I've committed, and clung to that truth, clung to that reality that he knew that he had been brought into right relation with the Father, with Yahweh himself. And so it's not his sin that is creating the suffering. And so he endured in the midst of all of that. Paul goes on to say, character produces hope, or endurance produces character. That is the reshaping of our very being. As we endure suffering and walk through it, we are pushed closer to God. We are pushed closer to our Lord Jesus. And he works and he changes. His spirit remolds, reshapes our desires, reshapes our inward being in order that we would act in character, in order that we would act according to what God has made us. Within our side, within ourselves, we have been transformed into new creations. We have been made part of the new creation. And the shaping of character is the bringing out of that new creation, that we might act from that new life, from that new creation more and more outwardly. And as we do that, as we discover this change of the Lord that he's created in us, it produces hope. It produces joy. It produces a looking to the future of what God has done, of what God is doing. And as Paul says, that character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope clings to God. Hope clings to who he is and what he has done in Jesus. And even more so... 
That hope will not put us to shame. That future hope, that looking at what God is going to accomplish in the future when Jesus returns, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here, we have the Holy Spirit poured into us to bring God's love to us. The Holy Spirit resides with us and brings God's love into us. You see, before we were saved, before we came to faith, before we knew Jesus, God's love was there for us. Paul will get into the why we have these things in just a moment. But here now, with the Holy Spirit being given to the church, God's love is poured into us. It is poured into the church. And if it's poured into the church, it's poured into us. As we live in faith, as we trust, as we draw near to Jesus, we experience that love more and more. God's full and complete love that comes from the Holy Spirit. That comes through the Holy Spirit to us. We rest in that. Again, whether we feel it or not, to be part of the church is to be part of the people who experience and receive God's love. That is the foundation, and that should draw our hearts to Jesus. That should draw our hearts to faith, to know that this exists for us, and we just merely receive it, that we merely walk in it, that we merely live in what God has done and let it renew and change us over and over and over. It's easy to get used to all of these things. It's like breathing air. We inhale, we exhale, we inhale, we exhale. We don't think about breathing. But here, all these things that we have, what we have, we get used to. And it's good to be reminded of what we have been given, that there is true and complete peace with God, that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we can even rejoice in the midst of sufferings, that those sufferings change us and shape us and bring us hope. And in the midst of that hope, we won't be put to shame because God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit. That's what we have. That's where Paul starts in this chapter by laying out all that we have been given in Jesus through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now Paul says why we have it. Five, 6 through 11 lays out why we have all of these things. And Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 6. In verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those two verses tell us that despite our weakness, despite our sin, the love of God has been revealed in Jesus. That is why we have these gifts, why we have these graces, is that through Jesus, God has taken away that which separates us. While we are still weak, while we are still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the unrighteous. He died for sinners. He died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that is how God reveals his love to us and to the whole world. That is why we have it, and out of that, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. You see, if God can accomplish so great a thing as to remove all of our sin from before himself in Jesus, that while we were still enemies, while we were still at enmity, while we were still cut off from God's goodness, he sends Jesus to die for us. He can do that great thing. It is but a tiny thing to carry us on into what final glory. 
God accomplished the greatest act in all of history, removing sin from before himself and before us, that we can turn in faith and be justified through Jesus, that we can be brought into right relation through Jesus. How much more is God going to then carry us on forward in that faith, in that justification, in that right relation, and not let our sin anymore stand between us and himself? In verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. <clears throat> Forgiveness and reconciliation are two sides of the same coin ultimately in this passage. <clears throat> to be forgiven and to receive that forgiveness is to be brought into a reconciled relation to the Father that is accomplished in the man, Jesus. It is accomplished in the God-man, in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, that reconciliation, that forgiveness. And through faith, we enter into that. Through faith, we rest in that. Paul says, even more than that, we also rejoice. He brings it back to rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, all of those things that we have been given come from the work of Jesus, come from the fact that God sent him to die for us while we were sinners. All of those things are real that we have. We experience them, we appropriate them, we cling to them through trusting what Christ has done, through the work of Jesus on our behalf. We cling to it in that way and we receive it and we live in it by faith. It's there. Faith isn't a feeling, faith isn't some experience of God. Faith is simply trust. Think of a baby and its parents. A baby doesn't know it's trusting its parents, but it does in the fact that a parent can pick it up when it's crying and soothe it. Whereas a stranger, it doesn't trust that. It'll keep crying for a long time until it just wears itself out or until it comes to know who that stranger is and recognize that that stranger is someone that can be trusted. But there's an automatic experience with the baby for the mother and father. He recognizes them. He trusts them. He lets them pick him up and lets them calm him down. Our trust is similar to that. We have heard of who Jesus is. We have heard of who God the Father is and what they have accomplished. And the Spirit brings that work into us. And so now we can rest in that work. We can endure. We can move forward and be reshaped. Our character can be reshaped by the Spirit working in us. Because even when we were sinners, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. And God has revealed his love for us through that death and pours it into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And so here Paul continues showing this picture of us of what salvation looks like in Jesus. And he starts bringing it down to us on the individual level, I think. The first few chapters look at the global scale of everything that's broken in the world and how God has begun dealing with that. And in this one, as Paul gets into in this chapter, gets into the issue of peace and joy and reconciliation and forgiveness, he's bringing it to us individually that we can cling to it by faith. And by faith we are in the church to draw near to the Lord. And so we can revel in the revelation of God's love in Jesus. And we can know that there is peace, that there is joy, that there is change, 
that there is a right relation with the Father now on account of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.